10. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 10. You will find the text on the insert, short outline as well. And you will notice pretty quickly an overlap with Pastor Nathan's short Jonah series. And we are mindful about a lot of planning elements, but as it relates to working through books of the Bible, it was as simple as we knew we were starting the Lee Summit services in the morning, and I would be there for two weeks, and Pastor Nathan preaches that last Sunday in December. He had three weeks, and he said, I think I can preach Jonah in, four, in three weeks. And it turns out that the content of Jonah has a lot of connection with what um, we are reading today. And out of 66 books, to happen to have it happen that way, we know it's God's, uh, God's way of ordering these things, and we're thankful. Uh, but his word is sufficient, so we can open up any book and preach through it and be blessed. We are in the book of Acts as a series, though, and we res- resume our time in chapter 10. Some Bible teachers say that Acts chapter 10 is the story of two conversions. The conversion of Cornelius on the one hand, and then the conversion of Peter on the other. Now, Cornelius, it's conversion to Christ. He's introduced to Jesus and believes on Christ in this chapter. For Peter, he's already trusted in Christ, but he is ensconced in his Jewish way of thinking, and the gospel to this point was predominantly Jewish in its flavor, meaning that mostly um, Jewish people, the Israelites, that's the first place that the gospel was unleashed by God's design. But Peter would be used of God to then bring the gospel to the nations. That's the intention of God in the gospel itself. But it would take personally somebody having to have a change in their way of looking at the world for this to happen, and God would do this change. There are really a couple layers to chapter 10 of the book of Acts. The top layer is the unfolding of God's plan to give the nations to Christ. It's, an, it's a picture um, of how the gospel goes forward from the beginning and really extends into our day, how we ought to look at proclaiming the message of the gospel, to whom we should proclaim that message. That's the top layer. We see it unfolding. Um, the underlying layer, though, it's an example of gospel priority that ought to grip every church and every Christian. A priority about the gospel going forward that overrides any personal bias, prejudice, anything that would make us stop from bringing the gospel to somebody, that should be destroyed by our passion to see Christ made known and for all people everywhere to come to know Christ. We can't make them know Christ, but we can proclaim the gospel. And this passage encourages us in that respect. We are so personally touched by the grace of God as forgiven sinners, all of us here, those who profess faith in Christ. We're so personally touched by what God has done for us, even though we don't deserve it, that we see past our human prejudices and biases to our fellow human beings who are lost in their sin just like we were, And we do so, we look that way with a commitment to share the gospel with them. Our mission as a church is to grow as a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study his word, and proclaim his gospel to the world. We don't take out any one of those elements and be faithful. Um, If we're worshiping God, studying his word, we will want to share this with everyone. With that as a preface, let's now look to the text of scripture. This is God's holy word. We will see this gate opening now for the gospel to go to the nations. Most of us here are probably Gentiles. In that respect, 
we should be very thankful for what we see happen in the life of Cornelius. Starting at verse 1 of Acts 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Do you notice Joppa? That's where Jonah took off from. Peter is in Joppa. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a a great sheet descended, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call un- do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them, without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, please remove from our hearts any bias, any prejudice, or any hatred against our fellow men and women And replace it with a passion to see them know Christ as we have come to know Christ by your grace. Open the meaning of your word to us as we study this incredible passage that has Cornelius and Peter at the forefront. But the underlying message is the display of your intention to give the nations to Jesus. Pray for your Holy Spirit, uh, for the Holy Spirit's special aid in our understanding and applying your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know most of us probably don't think we have too many prejudices or biases against people. That's a hot topic discussion in our day for sure. I personally grew up across the street from some government housing, 
where many of my friends were African-American, and I'm still friends with them today. So I'd rather like to think that I'm not a racist. But I'll be honest, as I think about sin that I've dealt with or struggled with, it really came to a forefront when the 9-11 attacks happened. I didn't think about this so much until someone pointed it out, a close brother. For some time after that attack, I struggled with an inward judgmental attitude towards those who were wearing Muslim garb. I didn't say it out loud. I know better. I'm a pastor. I shouldn't do that. But underlyingly, I'm being honest, I kind of felt this, this unrest about, about them. I mean, who's them? I don't even know them personally, and I'm making a judgment on the basis of outward appearance in all the connections I'm making. Mostly false, but I'm making them. And it even maybe hindered my interaction with people that I met who were clearly Muslim. And I make no excuses for this. I think this is a sinful kind of judgment, even a hateful prejudice. Thankfully, God pretty soon after brought several different things into my life that really convicted me and I hope gave grace so that I could not partake in this kind of bias. Uh, The first way I'll mention is a good friend of mine growing up converted to Islam when he was in the military and we became reacquainted after this. And I love this brother, this friend, and so it was hard for me to reconcile where he was coming from because he was fanatic about it. And so we'd start this relationship that we continue to this day and we still disagree, but that human face on somebody started to break down the barriers and started to make me realize how much he needs Christ, and I need Christ too. And so that was one way in which the Lord started to break down a bias or a prejudice in my own life, in the way I was thinking about someone else related to sharing the gospel with them. I am sure there are other ways that I struggle with this too. Judging somebody, not reaching out to them because of it, thinking back to the the sermons in Jonah. Similarly, Jonah's attitude. Surely we can relate on some level if we're honest. When we see this passage, though, it brings us back to where we need to be thinking. God's plan for Messiah to inherit the nations is being realized before us in Acts chapter 10. And it causes a struggle for Peter. Peter has to wrestle with his biases, with his prejudices. This is true for people. We have ways in which we categorize and chalk people off and then don't speak to them or are hateful towards them or whatever it may be. We treat them differently. And the bottom line is we should be so desirous of everybody experiencing the salvation we have experienced in Christ that it should override whatever those prejudices are. We have two visions in this passage. These are visions that point to God's mission. They're different kinds of visions, but two visions nonetheless. Let's look at the one Cornelius has first, verse 1 and verse 2. It teaches us a timeless lesson or two as well. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Caesarea is a north shore city in Israel. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. It was a beautiful city in its time. It's named after Augustus Caesar. And there was a garrison of Roman soldiers there. We don't know how many, but this man Cornelius was in charge of a hundred of them. That's what makes him a centurion. He was part of the Italian cohort. Means he, this means he wasn't uh, indigenous to Caesarea, but rather he was from Rome, Italy area, was most likely trained there, and was sent down with a garrison to watch over this very pivotal and important port city. Here he was, undoubtedly a well-respected man, even if we didn't know it from the text. The centurions had the devotion of their men. 
they weren't high-ranking on the whole of the Roman army, but the men that they, the, the men that they commanded loved them because they came up from the ranks as a soldier themselves. We know further this is a man of high stature and character, and so he had a love that the men showed him. Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people. This is interesting, and the commentators argue about what it exactly means. We know that he knows the true God. We could say that much for sure. He fears God, and it's singular. It's not multiple gods. It seems as though we might imagine that he rejected the Roman pantheon religion and believed in something he saw with what the Jewish people were practicing. So much so that he showed it in generosity by giving to the poor of the Jewish faith. That's what giving alms meant. So he gave to their social welfare system, which was voluntary, so that people who were poor and needy would have something to cover for their needs. He was giving to this. He was clearly someone who was pious in some way. His family also being led in the same way of thinking. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, that's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he saw clearly a vision, an angel of God come in, in and say to him, Cornelius. And his response shows some awareness of God's presence. He stares at him in terror like anybody would. What is it, Lord? He, he knows that God is talking to him in some fashion. He said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. This is not the same as saying his prayers are effective like we would say a Christian's are through Christ, but God in his sovereignty ordains the, all prayers, and there's something about this devout demeanor that he has that, if you will, humanly speaking, catches the attention of God, and that's what's being described. Your piousness, your devoutness, your fear of God, your respect for God is shown in your actions, and God notices. Verse 4, he stared at him in terror. What is it, Lord? Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So the angel does not share the gospel with Cornelius, but tells him to go see, seek out Peter and bring him there. Peter will have something to say to you. There's a strategy here that God is using. There is something formal about this in some way that's symbolic of what will be opening up. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius is a man who respected rank and hierarchy, so he did what the angel said. And he brings two servants, and you'll notice something else, that his impact must have been resonating. Um, He called two of his servants and a devout soldier. Now, it might just mean devout or devoted to him, but it could mean something more, that he too was devout in his searching out for God, in his recognition of the true God of Israel as opposed to the false gods of Rome. The vision was to go fetch the apostle Peter, God supernaturally reaching out to this Gentile. Now, there are a couple lessons I want to draw your attention to from this vision. The first one, the high-level one, Cornelius here in the text of Scripture represents the expansion of the gospel now to the nations. To this point, it had been pretty unique in Jewish character. Now it was going to bust open, if you will, when this pretty well-known prominent Gentile 
would be introduced to Christ. John Stott says in his commentary, Cornelius represents a liberating of the gospel from its strictly Jewish clothing and an opening of the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. Cornelius is a reminder to us that God is giving the nations to Christ. That is his plan. That's the root or the heart of the Abrahamic covenant is to be a blessing to the nations. Now is the time for it to open. And whenever there's a transition, there's difficulty, there's strain, there's tension. The way Christ inherits the nations is through the spread of the gospel. And as the gospel goes out, it transcends kingdoms and nations and boundaries. People come to Christ and those boundaries dissolve as we are the family of God in this respect. Cornelius represents an outsider to God's covenant promises. And most of us, and there are some of us that may be of Jewish descent, most are not. And so we are strangers to the covenants of promise. We would not have the knowledge of the history that the Jewish people would have that leads up to the Messiah. We come into it late. And this is what Paul refers to in Ephesians 2. And it applies here to Cornelius and probably to most of us. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. The Jews called you the uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, the, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. This is Paul writing to the Christian church in Ephesus. Having no hope without God in the world, there's no way you would have known if God had not reached out to you with his revelation. So, when you're thinking like the Jews would have been thinking, here's Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman one at that. But God goes to him just like he went to Abraham. Abraham was just a pagan man in the middle of nowhere, and God went to him and revealed salvation to him. God goes to Cornelius and is about to reveal salvation to him. That's the big lesson. But there's a second lesson that's personally applied when all of us stop to think about how we came to Christ, whatever your story is. Cornelius, in a way, serves as a reminder of our own salvation experience. I don't mean the particulars of it. It's the way he knew there was a God, but didn't know God personally. He was smart, so he could see there had to be a God. I will always argue that it's a rational thing to believe in God. I understand why people say it's not, and they'll say they're atheists. They say that so that they don't have to face that there's some accountability with the Creator. But it's not a rational thing to look at a snowflake and say it has no designer designer. It's not a rational thing to look at trees and think they weren't made. There's no way to look at the massive diversity of life on earth and think that it just happened. That's not, that's not rational. So many people in general will come to believe there is a God. They just don't know what to do with that information. And here's the thing. They can't do anything with that information unless God reaches to them in a special way. The former way is just a general way God reveals. Everybody could see it. The special way God reveals is through Christ, and the ministry or the, the record of his word is what gives us what we know about Jesus. That's where scripture comes in. The whole of the Bible is testimony to Christ. Christ is God revealed to us, the way of salvation given to us. So we have to have special revelation. All of us fall in the same category. None of us was so smart that we figured out there's a God. Now I know how to be right with him without being told, without God impressing it upon us. We are dependent, just as dependent as Cornelius, to be saved. Now with that mindset, it should make us grateful. We should say, first of all, why? Why would God do this? Then after we get over that and realize he has, 
that should then compel us to want to tell everybody because the means God normally uses is by us sharing what that message is, how they could be right with God through Christ. Special revelation given by God that we now are stewards of to give it out. Later in Ephesians 2, that same passage I referred to, the second part of it says, and he came and preached peace to you, talking about Jesus and Paul saying this. He came to preach peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. And through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, that's all of us in Christ, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we're reading that foundation in Acts 10. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, his messengers are sent to go find Peter and bring him back. Now we have the second vision. Look at the text in verse 9. This is Peter's vision, which will be strange to us without some context. But let's begin. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, it's 32 miles, so these centurions, these soldiers were moving fast. As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter the same time, unbeknownst to him that they were coming, he went up to the housetop about the sixth hour, that's noontime the next day, and he became hungry. He's up on this roof, and there's the Mediterranean Sea, he's getting hungry. He wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, no doubt in the lower level there, he fell into a trance. Here we go again, a vision's coming. Now, it's important before we go into the vision to realize this backdrop. There is a massive, I can't even understate how massive the gap was between the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century. So much had happened over the centuries between the Jews and the nations. But now it was at a a very, very heightened point, an all-time heightened point that would culminate with the Romans crushing the Jewish Jewish central uh, capital in in the temple and, and so forth in 70 AD. This is not that many years before that. So it's building up. There's a real angst there. And the way the Jews safeguarded was by viewing God's national election of them that plays out in the Old Testament as a way of looking at the other nations as basically scum. In fact, they had a word for Gentiles that was scum. Um, I'm not saying that God-fearing faithful Jews all thought this way, but the general national demeanor was the Gentiles are scum. They're Gentile dogs is what they were referred to. We find this in the language of the day in their reference. The key way that they were kept distinct from the nations or from the Gentiles was their dietary code, that special dietary code outlined in the Old Testament. The Jews held onto it as a point of pride and a point of dirtiness for everybody else. We follow this code that God reveals in any, and we eat the things that God calls clean. Anything else is unclean. That's the background for what we have in this vision. And it means something far more. Um, if you're sitting in a restaurant in Caesarea and you saw someone eating a ham sandwich, and you were a Jewish person, they're unclean. So the way they identified what people were clean or unclean was based on what they ate. It was the most obvious thing you could see. So it's with this in mind that God gives Peter this vision. He fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending. Literally in the language, it's, it's a sail or a linen. Could mean like the ships on the sea in the Mediterranean, the big sail that came out. This, this picture of something big that can carry things and you would just serve up some things on it. 
And the, it's being let down by its four corners upon the earth. That's a depiction of the expanse of it on the earth. In it were all kinds of animal, animals. That's all kinds, by the way. There's no distinction here of clean or unclean. All kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So we know there are some unclean mixed in. Unclean by the Old Testament Jewish law code. Verse 13, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. In other words, hear all these animals, you can eat any of them. They're open to you now. Peter's response is, by no means, Lord. You know, Peter's good at that kind of stuff. No, Lord, I will not. Here he is again. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that's common or unclean. Now, let's be fair to Peter. He has been growing. There's no question about it. We've seen some of his when the Sumerians came to faith earlier in Acts, he was interested and thought this an authentic thing. He's just trying to wrap his mind around it. It's so difficult because he's only known this Jewish backdrop. Now there are these people who are not being circumcised, who are coming to faith in Christ, and they're being baptized. He's having a hard time putting it together. Then he finds himself in Joppa and a tanner's house. A tanner is someone who would be unclean, dealing with dead animals. Yet he knows he's a Christian, the Simon he's living with. They're brothers, but yet he's not following the Jewish laws like he should. So there's a a change happening in Peter. He's not completely in his old Jewish way of thinking, but he's not all the way there yet. And we know that because when this vision says that you can eat anything, he says, no way, I can't do that because he's so connected into his customs and his traditions and his way of looking at. Now, understand the deeper meaning. That becomes clear to Peter. It should be clear to us. Clean foods and unclean foods. Clean foods for the Jews, unclean foods for the Gentiles. Clean foods to the Jews mean clean people. Unclean foods to the Gentiles mean unclean people. That's how they thought. And so for God to say this restriction is no longer valid is to say you cannot think of any division between people now as you go forward. You have got to put away those old prejudices. You've got to put away those old biases. You've got to change your outlook on the world. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord. There's pride attached to to his former obedience, it's inevitable that this would be a painful disconnect, although the Lord had been, in fact, working. It does show how deep-seated our old ways of thinking and acting can be. Verse 15, and the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Common means unclean. You've got to do what God says, Peter. There was a, a particular time for those dietary codes that was unique to the point in redemption history that it was called to be. No longer did that, was that necessary. And notice what it says in verse 16. Maybe you catch this. This vision that he sees, this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Maybe Peter needed to hear things three times. Remember he said that he denied the Lord three times, and the Lord said three times, do you love me, Peter? So three times, Peter gets the same vision, so there could be no mistake. Here's the thing. God's word determines the standard, not how we feel about it or what our traditions or our customs do. God's word must change our customs. God's word must correct our traditions. God's word must be used to convict us of our sinful bias or prejudices. We have to submit our prejudices to the Lord for his changing so that people can know the gospel. That's the reason. So that we can share the gospel. We can share the message of Christ. I want you to notice how the Lord works, and he does this in all of our lives, so beware. As his world is being rocked right now, verse 17, 
while Peter was inwardly perplexed, he's convicted. Okay, three times he's seen the vision. He's got to know what this means to some level. He's thinking, maybe, did I just go through this? Did I really hear it? But I heard it three times. I think I know what the Lord's saying. While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Warning, this is what the Lord will do in your life. When you're starting to deal with something, he starts to reveal something in your life, he usually doesn't let you off with one such sign. He hammers you with other things that will come to assure, yes, the Lord is now working on me in this area. You know what I'm talking about. It's some area that you're struggling with. You become aware of it, and now multiple things keep reminding you of it. Here's Peter, who's just heard this life-shattering, world-vision-impacting vision, and here he is, and there's a knock on the door, essentially. Verse 19, while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. And for the record, the Greek text there, without hesitation, could also mean without distinction. Like, go with a fair mind quickly to hear what's going to be said. For I have sent them. So there's no question about where this is all coming from. This is coming from God, and Peter must obey. The Holy Spirit directs Peter to meet these men without hesitation or distinction. Verse 21, Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Peter has had lots of downs in the scriptures. He's failed some tests. Would Peter get it? Did God's vision grip him for God's mission? Verse 23. These are wonderful words at the beginning of verse 23. And they're true for all of us, by the way. You will not overcome all your sinful inclinations, but God gives us things we can obey, and we should reach out to obey those things even when our hearts aren't completely fixed and ready for it. And what do we have as a response from Peter? So he invited them in to be his guests. Whatever he was still dealing with in his heart, he knew what the Lord had said and what he should do. There's a change here in Peter that takes root and really holds him. He has other downs, but right here, something really has pivotal, pivotal has happened. Cornelius becomes the fulfillment of Peter's vision ultimately, this Gentile Cornelius. Cornelius was representative of the mission going forward, the mission that still goes on. The gospel, the Messiah, never meant for just Israel. Israel's purpose was to bring the Messiah for the world. The Messiah had come and finished his work. Messiah ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God. From God's right hand, God the Son, the Messiah, rules. And the Lord said to my Lord, I will make the nations a footstool. I will give you the nations. And that's what he's doing now as the gospel goes forward and people come to Christ. And the apostles were foundational witnesses, and we're reading this foundational story of how this begins. Peter had to shed his old prejudices and limitations. Through this vision to Peter, and by way of Cornelius, Peter was awakened to the, to the expanse of God's mission to the world for Christ. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. He's going to go and he's going to proclaim the gospel and Lord willing, we'll be there next week. But I want to draw from this vision two lessons also from Peter's vision. 
First, once again, the overarching lesson we receive as we look at this story is about the sovereignty of God to exact his plan of redemption, which always included a huge expansion to the nations. Um, This was God's plan ultimately, starting small but to get big. The covenant promise of Abraham, or to Abraham, overtly stated in God's intention for the nations here now. God never intended to limit salvation to one nation. God's plan for Messiah to inherit the nations is being realized before us in Acts 10. And it sets the stage for us as a church and as Christians for future kingdom expansion as well. So here's the second related lesson, more personal to us, very practical, if you will. There can be, for us Christians, there can be no limitations for who we go out to reach with the message of Christ. There's no place for racism, classism, elitism, or any other kind of divisive ism. We are mostly Gentiles, but all of us have been born again out of sin if we claim Christ. And there's nothing we did to deserve it. And so we should not look down at anybody in that regard. There's nothing attractive about us that God saved us. In fact, we all came from different to come to this place because we agree with that. We're here worshiping God who saved us because we're not much to look at, but yet in his mercy, he saved us through Christ. That unites us. In fact, our primary identity, brothers and sisters, is Christian. It's not all the other labels that there are out there. You are a Christian first. Even before you're a father, a mother, a wife, a brother, a sister, you are a Christian first. You are a redeemed sinner. That drives everything else that's priority for you. And anything else that would get in the way of you being able to declare your Christianity to others so they might know Christ that stuff's got to be pushed aside. Those prejudices, those bias, those labels, they've got to go because you're a Christian first. And you can't say you're a Christian first if these other things would inhibit you from wanting at least to desire to share the gospel. You won't always have the opportunity. God has to grant that. But we should desire to pray towards God give us those who are different than us so that we can share this message with them. Break down whatever prejudices we have, every, any bias we have, any ism we have, so that we can be faithful declarers of this message so that no people would have to endure hell. Because that matters more to us than whatever the boundaries are. Think of all the ways that we find to divide. Uh, don't look at people in that respect. We can't as Christians. It's not about their politics. It's not about their ethnicity, their socioeconomic class, their age, their gender, whatever. They're people who need a Savior just like you and I, and we have to keep that priority right. God calls the church to be about that as its priority. We should be known for people who preach the gospel. People may not agree with our gospel. They may not uh, affirm what we're saying, but they should know that place. You know what they really care about is everybody knowing about Christ. That's really what drives them. They're weird about that, but that's what they're about. That's what we should be known for. That's what we should, should see coming forth from this passage among others. You know, later in the same chapter, just to skip ahead a little, in verse 28, Peter totally gets it. Sometimes you wonder, you know, Peter hears things and then comes out different later. Well, listen to what Peter says later when he's talking to these men in uh, Caesarea. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone in another nation, of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God's shown me that my tradition is not superior to my relationship to Christ. Peter obeyed the prompting of the Holy Spirit and grew. Matthew Henry said it this way, obedience to the Spirit, like Peter showed there, that leads to understanding. When you obey what the Spirit says, even if you don't feel it completely, do it, 
that will lead you to understand. Understanding demands further obedience then, and that's where growth happens. I began by telling you about my own personal struggle with prejudice I was feeling after 9-11 in particular, and God has continued to work on me in that regard. But it's, it's, shortly after that, just like I said, when the Lord's working on you in some area, he'll just kind of hammer you with a bunch of different things at once, and just a few others. In addition to my friend who converted to Islam, and I've been dealing and struggling with him, um, there's a cousin of mine who um, was an architect by trade and had made quite a bit of money in his own firm. And, and in, the, in the family, he was kind of the guy that had the big house and he had all the, all the Italian uh, members of the, who kind of whisper about how much he must have made and stuff. I always love listening to older guys talk about that. Ten years older than me, so we talked a little bit about um, his career and things like that. Kind of abruptly, about ten years ago, he sold his house and his business and he moved to an area in western New York where there, it was predominantly uh, Muslim refugees from, uh, from an African nation. And he felt God had called him to just share the gospel with them. But he felt the way he could do this best is to help several of them learn trades and set up businesses because he was really good at this. And he won them over by his friendship in this way. And he is unabashed about preaching the gospel to them. He is just, he's like, and he's not a trained preacher. He just felt the Lord had called him. And I, I tell you, when he told me this, it was right in the thick of me still struggling with, man, how do you deal with? And it just cut me. I mean, I was, that's exactly right. The very people you feel most uncomfortable with are probably the people you should first ask for God to give you repentance concerning in that thinking. And then you should go. If you can have an opportunity, go and figure out a way to share the gospel or ask God to give you opportunity. If that weren't enough, um, a couple years after that, uh, knock on the front door of the church, figuratively speaking, and it's a 17-year-old girl who had just moved here as a, as a refugee from Syria. Um, it was when the president was taking in at that time frame refugees from different countries under all sorts of, he got all sorts of uh, flack for that. I understand people's reasoning, but this girl had two brothers already killed in the Syrian war, a strong, devout uh, Muslim. She wanted to talk to a Christian pastor about Christianity. So I sat in a Geneva room out there and just talked to her about it. At first I thought she just wanted to know the gospel, so I'm going to give her the gospel, and that's what I did. Shortly after I realized she just wanted to argue with me about Christianity and Islam, and she wanted to disprove Christianity to me. I thought, this is kind of interesting. Bold, 17, she's the age of my own children, and here she's passionate about this. Now, after about the second or third visit, I realized all she wants to do is argue about it. She would bring the Gospel of John, open it up, and argue with me about it. Had no respect whatsoever about what I may or didn't, may, knew, may have known or didn't know. Just was going to hammer it home and, and didn't really listen to anything I was saying. I, my heart started breaking, though, because I realized she wasn't there to hear. Now, I did trust that the Word of God will not return void, so if I can keep showing her the Word and go through it, maybe something would happen. Um, by the fourth time, we realized we weren't getting anywhere, and I realized what she was doing. My friend who converted to Islam said she's in jihad. And real jihad isn't in attacking everybody. I know some people take it that way, but it's the struggle. It's the struggle. And she had planted in a place that was no longer predominantly uh, Islamic, at least where she lived, wanted to find that struggle somewhere and engage me in it. And in interacting with this person who's the age of my children, and seeing her passion for it, gave me a different appreciation for her as a person and a desire to see her go from lostness to life that only Christ can give. And then to top it all off, not too long ago, Mark Dunn, the deacon from our church, from of old, you all remember, he got connected in, uh, with Muhammad Yamud, who's a guy who does Islam, Muslim ministry in Lebanon. What they do is, and this is typical Mark Dunn style, they go into the border of Syria when the war was at its height, and they go on the border where all the refugees come out, and they set up um, mercy camps, you know, with water and food and things, and then they just preach the gospel. It's not just uh, relieving their physical needs. It's, it's pastors go in there, 
members of the church and they shared the gospel with, through the scriptures. And I'm talking by hundreds, people were coming to faith in Christ. People who were Muslims fleeing the war who had been hearing this message all along and been completely abandoned. And now Christians were there saying, we want to share with you the love of Christ. These kinds of things the Lord brought into my attention and it's helped me get over those kinds of sinful prejudices I might have had. What is it for you? All of us have something, somebody. It could be someone that has a political view completely different than us and we get real mad about it. Don't let politics get in the way of your representation of Jesus Christ. He is more important than any party. We've got to remember this as a church because all that will fall away. The only thing that will last is God's word and Christ. Remember this, brothers and sisters. Let us be known for our devotion to Christ, not to parties. We see this so evident in what Peter is being taught, and I hope that it becomes even more reality for us as fellow Christians and for our church. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father, we see the glory of Christ and his redemption in our own lives. Uh, We sense this because you have given us this experience. We know it's true because your word says it. We want all people everywhere to be saved by Christ. Please give us repentance for any prejudices we have so that we might effectively preach the message that they must hear to receive. Free us from the shackles of discrimination or bias against any other person. Allow us to present Christ with love and honesty. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together turn to 600. We'll respond to the word of God preached by singing 600 as a bit of a prayer for God's leading. We'll stand as we sing verse 1 and verse 2.